wonderful singing this morning. You may be seated. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter number 12. We've been in a series now on walking with God. We have finished looking at Noah, and in Noah we find as a person the grace of God. The Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this morning we're beginning a series, four weeks. Uh, We'll have three, and then Jessica and I and the boys will be gone the first week of March. Brother Mike Duffy will preach, and we'll finish the fourth sermon in this little sub-series on Abraham the second week of March, and we're looking at walking with God then and Abraham. If Noah was grace, then what we're going to find with Abraham is that he is faith. If we're going to study characters and find our walk with God, we're going to see and understand that in Abraham, faith is demonstrated. We call him Father Abraham. The kids in the children's program sing, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. And so we know that old song, and that's a wonderful truth. We find then in our reading this morning in Genesis chapter 12, in verses 1, 2, and 3, the setting or the introduction to this man, Abraham. Let's read together, and we'll pray, and we'll dive right into the sermon this morning on Abraham. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham... Now, stop and think about that for a moment. We'll come back to that and talk about it. God's already spoken to Abraham at some point. The Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Father, this morning as we come to the word of God, I pray that we would take it, and trust it, and see that it is good in our lives. May we exercise the very same faith that Abraham exercised, trusting your word. Bless us, I pray today, as we open our hearts and our minds to the things that the Bible teaches us. We live in a very corrupt world, and we'll see that Abraham lived in a corrupt world. But we too can exercise the same trusting faith in an almighty God. Give us grace and understanding today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to study Abraham by examining what God puts forward as the most remarkable element of his life, and that is his faith. Over the next four Sundays, we will examine Abraham's faith in surrender. That's today's message. We will examine Abraham's faith in stewardship next week. We will examine Abraham's faith in sacrifice in three weeks. And then the final message will be Abraham's faith in success. To study Abraham's faith, however, we must have a biblical understanding of what faith is. Faith could be said this way. It is the intellectual assent followed by our personal trust. Faith is intellectual assent, followed by our personal trust. Let me give you a couple examples. I use these examples every time I preach on faith. You came in this morning and you sat in that chair. Why? You trusted it, says Brother Jeff. 
Why'd you sit in the chair you picked? Well, my friends are here and all the people are here. But why'd you sit in that one? Because when you looked at it, you made a pretty quick assessment. You assented intellectually that when I plop myself down in it, it will hold my weight up. You trusted that someone built it the right way. I've used that example many a times, and it's not too dissimilar to what we're going to study today. Let me give you another example. How many of you drove to church this morning? How many of you flew to church? How many of you walked to church? How many drove to church? Well, most of us drove to church. How many of you ladies let your husbands drive you to church this morning? There are a lot more raising your hand. You exercise the most faith this morning that the person who assembled or manufactured your car built it the right way. What were you thinking? Oh, that my husband could drive. Well, that's also an element of faith and get us here safely. But the truth of the matter is we exercise faith every day. We exercise faith in God. We exercise faith in ourselves. We exercise faith in our fellow man. So when we understand the Bible principle that is here given to us, the definition requires an intellectual assent to the facts, and then it brings a personal trust on our part in those facts. Here's how God says it in His Word in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, he goes on in the next verse and says, the elders obtained a good report. There are a good number of people in this world who intellectually assent to the fact that Jesus Christ lived. There's a lot of people that believe Jesus lived, but there are far fewer who trust him as their personal savior. You see, what we're going to be talking about as we come to the life of Abraham is we're going to look at the faith that Abraham demonstrated, the faith that Abraham examples for us. Abraham was asked to go to a promised land for a promised life from a personal Lord, we might say. That meant he had to act in faith in leaving his parents' land, his present life, and trust that Lord perfectly. Abraham intellectually assented that the offer was good because of the one who made the offer. Now you're going to see this morning that that's going to tie in deeply to what we're going to be preaching on. Do you believe the one who is behind the offer of salvation? This is the basis of our study for the next four weeks, this idea of faith. So as we come to our particular sermon this morning, we find that Abraham's faith was in surrender. His faith was in surrender. May I say to you, it's the beginning of all faith. You must surrender to who God is and who you are. I put in your notes, faith begins with the act of surrendering to the evidence that we know is true. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've come to the point where you recognize you were a sinner and the only hope of your salvation was that Jesus Christ came, that Jesus Christ lived, that Jesus Christ died, and that he rose again the third day. You have put your faith in that fact. You have to surrender to it. You can't kind of hope in it. You either believe it or you don't. The faith of Abraham was a surrender to the truth that he had of who God was. Now, we might ask ourselves, who was God to him? I put a chart up here on the boards for us of all of the lives that were lived. Now, it's teeny tiny. In the first hour, 
some of our prime timers came to us and said, Pastor, I couldn't see it. Was that your purpose? No, I, I, it's not my purpose. I just don't know how to get all of these names on there. So the very far left one at the very top is Adam, if that gives you any perspective. The dates that are along the bottom of the chart take us from creation until basically the one we're talking about this morning, Abraham. And so we read or understand that the little faint line that is about to halfway through Shem's life, that's the first arrow on there, is the great flood of the world. But the red dotted line shows us when Shem died as compared to or set against when Abram died. In other words, Abram had all of the oral traditions and all of the understanding of God from his greatest of grandfather Shem. There's no reason he wouldn't have been able to talk to him if he wanted to. Whether he did or not, we don't know in the Word of God. But he would have been able to have all of his parentage come into his life and teach him all of the principles that he needed to know. That's going to be important for us this morning because one of the things God's going to ask Abraham to do is to leave. To step out even beyond what his parents had taught him and what all of the people in his life knew and trusted about God. He was going to receive... A call, ultimately, and he would have to answer it. In Abraham's journeying, there were a lot of twists that would test his faith, as we'll study over the next four Sundays. Yet in the end, his faith, as we sing, had found a resting place. The resting place was not in device or creed, but in a person, the God of heaven. His surrender must become our surrender to Jesus Christ, too. We learn from Genesis chapter 12 that Abram's surrender was first a surrender to God's call in our outlines. To God's call. That's what we read in verses 1 through 3. God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. God calls him to the land of Canaan. Abram would never become Abraham had he not answered God's call to the land of promise. Make no mistake of that this morning. As believers in Jesus Christ, you and I cannot become the sons of God until we personally answer God's call in salvation. That is, that is that we ask God to forgive us from our sins and to give us new life that comes only through the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham's journey, then, is a journey of faith that we must make as well. There are multiple phrases, if we were to read all of Genesis 12, that indicate a responsive movement of Abraham to God's gracious call. God is gracious in selecting and calling Abraham to the land of Canaan, to a promised land. And it is Abraham who has to be moving at that call. Notice that the surrender to God's call begins, letter A, with leaving our old life. Go back and look in chapter 11 of Genesis. Chapter 10 of Genesis is the table of nations, the dispersion of the people groups across the world, the lineages that we come from, where we come up with people's tongues and nations. In the beginning of chapter 11, there is a collection of mankind together building a temple or a tower unto the heavens, unto God. And they were worshiping God in their own way. And God says, look, I'm going to go down and confound their languages. He does that. And at the end of chapter 11, instead of tracing all of the godless lines, God puts a focus on the godly line, the one that Abram would ultimately come to or come from, I should say. Pick up our reading in verse number 27 of chapter 11. And here's what we find. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, 
Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of, of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Pause for a second. We noted in the opening reading of the text this morning that the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram. I believe, pastorally, that this was the first call, if you will, to Abram to go into the land of promise. But in that call, his father was still alive, and so his father accompanies him on the journey, but they stop in Haran. And here's what we read in the next verse. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. In other words, they had started their movement to God's promised land. They had started their movement in faith and action. But it isn't until after Terah dies that Abram has a specific and renewed call. I want to bless you. Do you want my blessing? I want you to follow me. Will you follow me? As we understand this, then, Abram's pilgrimage began where ours begins, with a vision of a better country, with a thought of a home that is forever blessed in the dwelling place of God. One author said it this way, speaking of this process of the conversion of the soul and the process of Abraham's faith and obedience. He says, God speaks, we believe, faith dawns, life begins. That's a good way to put it. God speaks, we believe, faith dawns, life begins. Abraham had been given an assurance of God's grace in a promised land, but he had to take the steps of faith. Look at the map and consider where he traveled, nearly a thousand miles. The little dot on the far right at the bottom is Ur of the Chaldees. He traveled likely the solid red line up the banks of the Euphrates River following along. There would be food and provision for his family and his, and his flocks in that travel. And he stopped at the top of the triangle at Haran. Haran would have been a place that the world would have known and the world's commerce could have traveled through from the Far East to over what was becoming Greece and Turkey in his time. They weren't countries as we know them, but people groups were beginning to spread into those areas. From Haran, there was a traveling down through Damascus, what would become known as the King's Highway, all the way down to the Nile in Egypt. This journey, these steps of faith are lined out for us in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 8. Here's what the Bible says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. If you want to have a new life, you have to leave the old one. It's what the surrender to God's call teaches us in the life of Abraham. He had to leave Haran. He had to leave that which he knew. By the way, let me give you a little insight here. This is the problem so often for kids who grow up in Christian homes. 
This is the problem that so often develops in good churches, even like ours, with kids who grew up here and here preaching, hopefully solid, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, Sunday evening after Sunday evening, youth group after youth group. The problem is it has to become yours and not your parents. There was a time in my life as a kid, I grew up in a good Christian home, a good family. I grew up with great parents, and I was no different than Abraham. I wanted the things of God. Tira wanted the things of God, but they didn't go all the way there. Now, I'm glad my parents were faithful, but there came a point in my life where it had to become my decision to trust Jesus Christ, where it had to become my call, and that which I surrendered to, that I understood salvation was for me. That is the story and the lesson that we are learning here in the life of Abraham. Salvation is leaving the old life. Why? Because you know that in Jesus Christ, there is a better life that waits for you. Why would he leave Haran? Why would he leave what he knew? And the answer is because he knew there was a better one waiting for him. He knew that the God who spoke to him was the God who had saved Shem and and Noah on that ark. He was the God who had judged in the garden. He knew that God, and he knew that if that God was calling him, he had to surrender, and it began by leaving his old life. But it followed by, letter B, loving his new life. You can't just leave the old and not love the new. There are two elements of faithful surrender. We pick up our reading again in verse number 4. The Bible says in chapter 12, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, which is Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the, and the Canaanites was in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called, in other words, he's fully worshiping now, called upon the name of the Lord. The two elements that we read of in the first eight verses that we are to have when we surrender to God's call of salvation in our life and it is to leave, but it's also to love. And in that loving, it is obeying. Jesus said what? If ye love me, keep my commandments. We could say it this way. He said it far better than I ever would, but we could say it equally this way. If you love me, obey me. And so this morning, for the Christian who's trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, if you loved him or wanted enough to leave the old life, recognizing that it was condemnation, it was damnation, it was death, it was darkness, and in Christ there was life and love and liberty, if that's what you wanted, why don't you love it now? Well, what's wrong now? we find that Abraham was one that loved his new life. Abraham got, heard God's call and obeyed. Verse 4 should be the faithful mindset of every believer. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. He obeyed immediately. Our faith should cause us to obey God. We don't have the audible voice of God calling us today, but we do have the written word of God 
that leads us day by day. It tells us what is right versus what is wrong. It tells us what is best over what is better. It tells us what is excellent over what is just acceptable in the eyes of God. Oh, that we would love the Christian life. Oh, that we would love God's call enough to obey. Abraham loved God's call to the land of promise and obeyed. Obedience is the fruit of surrender. Get that. If you are not obeying God, it's because you don't want to surrender to Him. And by the way, in our flesh, I get that. In the spiritual man and as a spiritual counselor, as a pastor, I don't understand it. But obedience is the fruit of surrender. It is the proof that we love Him because we recognize He first loved us. So I ask this morning, do you obey God? Notice I didn't say, do you obey the church? I don't care if you obey us or not. Uh, I don't obey pastor. You shouldn't obey pastor. You should obey God and His book. What can man do unto you? The second thing I think we find, the second element of loving the new life, is not just obedience to God, but it's true worship of God. At the end of verse 7, at the end of verse 8, we find twice Abraham comes into that land and he builds an altar to God. Building an altar just means he turned his heart towards heaven in rejoicing. Here's, listen to some of these verses in the Bible about worship. They're wonderful when we take them into consideration that this is likely the mindset and the heart of Abraham at that altar. Psalm 95 and verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 96 and verse 9, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. By the way, it's His holiness, not ours. Fear before Him all the earth. Psalm 99 and verse 5, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Why? For he is holy. He's different than us. Psalm 132 and verse 7, we will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. In the New Testament, it's no different. Jesus meets the woman at the well and in discussing life with her and spirituality, her worship of God. He says this in John 4 and verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That word truth has the idea of veracity. You can't just say you're worshiping Him. You must worship Him. And just in case you wonder if in heaven it will be any different, here's what we read in Revelations 4, beginning in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. By the way, that is a picture immediately after the rapture of God in His glory in verses 1 through 5. He has a rainbow about His head. He's thun- there's thunders and lightning that is going on. But the whole of humanity, the sea in prophecy, is always a picture of humanity. The whole of humanity that is standing before Him is peaceful, is calm is settled. It's not a raging sea. It's a crystal sea, like glass. He goes on in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before him. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy. Why would they say it three times? 
well, we want to drive home the point. No, there's three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a thrice holy God. They are making sure we understand in our worship, it is to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, that is a picture of us, Old Testament and New, the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, they fell down before him at the, and sat on the throne and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Friend, worship is what God desires from his creation. Abraham understood that. A life that is surrendered to God's call will leave the old life and they will love the new life. And in loving the new life, they will obey God and they will worship God. We might say it's in their attitudes and their actions. That's what Abraham teaches us. You say, you got all that out of the first eight verses. Hey man, hang with me. It gets even better. Worship is always the response of the heart fully surrendered to God. Abraham worshiped and obeyed God because he loved the new life that God had promised him. I ask this here at this point of the message. Do you love the new life that God has given you? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love the salvation that he offers? Faith and surrender begins with surrendering to God's call. But number two, we find it is surrendering to God's choices. God has made choices for the life he gives to us. Notice I didn't say you get to make choices. We have freedom. We have liberty. God's given us free will. But the choices of what the new life is like, the choices of where the new life is, the choices of what we will do in that new life, those are not ours. They're his. He assigns them to us. He prescribes them, if you will. He describes them in this book. Far too many a Christian comes to faith in Jesus Christ and believes then that they get to make all the choices. And the answer is, you got some choices to make, but they're not really yours of your free will. There are some choices you have to make if you're going to do what's right by God. Abraham had to learn that. God is the life giver. He is the promise maker. So choice rests with him. Jesus declared to his apostles, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. All he's saying there is, you couldn't come to a saving place without me coming to save you in this place. And from that, then he says this, and ordained you. Well, there's some choices then that God makes for us in that new life. And we need to wake up to them. We need to understand that Christianity is not to be lived like secular humanism, like the rest of the world lives. God as our creator and savior gives the promise of life according to his word, his will, in his way. Abraham had no hope of blessing outside of God's good graces. And may I say to you, you have no hope of heaven outside of God's good graces. If he's calling you to salvation, then he's also going to have some choices that you need to make once you get saved. God's choices are first seen, letter A, in his decisions. (coughs) His decisions.
There's a deep Bible truth that we must come to accept on this point. God is permitted to bless whom he will bless. Now, don't mishear me, especially my Calvinist friends. I didn't say God's going to save whom he will save. Those that will be saved will be saved, and those that won't be saved in his foreknowledge won't be saved. That's just a truth from the word of God. I'm saying in God's blessing, sometimes we look and we say, how does that jerk over there get blessed? How does he have a good life? The Bible says that there are wicked. In fact, I was reading in the Psalms this morning, there are times where the wicked seem to be prospering. And we say, how did that happen? And God says, listen, I'm up to something. You have to trust me. You've got to surrender. And that means surrendering, surrendering, excuse me, to his decisions. Abraham was no different than any other inhabitant of Haran. <gasps> At the moment of God's call, he was no different than anyone else there. For that matter, he was no different than anyone else alive in the world at that point. Remember, Shem was likely still alive at that point. Was Abraham better than him? No, we're not talking about being better. We're saying in God's decision, God chose to bless Abraham for a reason. Why? So that he could demonstrate Abraham what a faithful life looked like and what it would be like. God, by the way, has no obligation to explain himself to us. It's a principle called sovereignty. He is sovereign over his creation. One of my favorite passages on this subject in particular is found in Romans chapter 9, in verse 20 and 21. The Bible says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? By the way, let's pause for a second. There are a lot of Christians that ask God that question. I am amazed at the deep trials that some folks in our church are asked to walk through. But even more than most of the trials that I see people walk through in our church family, what I'm amazed at is their faith in God in the midst of it. God decides. God acts but we are promised that it is always for our good. The prophet Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Notice the exclamation point. God, I don't like how you did this. Careful. He may thunder into your life like he did Job's and say, were you there when I laid the fountains of the deep? Were you there when I established all of creation? That is not to say that we can't take our broken heart to him, but be very careful when we question his decisions in our life. It is a surrender in faith to God's choices because he's the one that makes the decisions. It is a maturing faith that takes this into account when difficulties strike, and we have seen many in our church walk through deep trials. But they are his decisions to make. Ours is but to trust in the loving God who saves us. 
He surrendered to God's choices because he recognized they're his decisions. But secondly, it is God's direction. It's his direction, letter B. Follow along with me here in chapter 12 and we'll see this unfold. In chapter 12 and verse 1, in the latter half of the verse, as he's saying to him, get thee out of thy country, he says this at the very last, after the last comma, he says, unto a land that I will show thee. Can I ask you a question? And I mean, if you have a Bible that's got extra chapters and you can tell me and it's it's true, then I would love to know. Does God ever tell Abraham where he's going? (laughs) Does he ever tell Abraham what he's up to and why he's doing this? All God says to Abraham is, I want you to trust me. I want you to give intellectual assent and then exercise personal trust that I am a good, gracious, and loving God and that what I do in your life, in my decisions and in my direction, are best for you. That's hard, friends. I know when you guys thought we were talking and preaching through Bible characters, we would just be talking about, oh, these are the friends he had. These are No, 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 these are deep things. These characters are there for our learning, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. They are there for our learning and understanding. In verse 6, he goes on and says this, and the Canaanite was in the land. We'll come back and visit that in just a moment, but I, I need to put it there so we understand what direction means. The beginning of verse number 7, the Bible says, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. By the way, by the time we get to verse 7, he's made it to the land. How did he make it there? By surrendering to God's choice and where he would lead him and where he would direct him. And you know what? We're not told any of those details in these verses. We're just told that God said to him, go to a land that I will show you. On the way in faith, he shows him. And when he shows up, he says, and by the way, I'm going to give it to your children. By the way, he didn't have a land or know where he was going. And once he got the land, he had no kids. It was a constant process of trusting God. Day by day by day. That is your life and that is my life in Christ today. It is interesting to note that God led Abraham to write where the Canaanites lived. If you put your thinking caps on and go back to last week in Noah, and we talked about the faltering of Noah at the end of his life, that his sin was being drunk in drunkenness, he was naked and exposed, and that there was a sin of Ham, his son, for coming in and mocking his father instead of correcting or covering the the sin of his father in the correct way. He doesn't do that. He mocks him. And what is the curse in Genesis chapter number nine? The curse is upon Canaan, the son of Ham. And here we find that Abraham is brought into the land of Canaan. Why? Because God will always direct us through his choices to the thing that is in our life that is a curse that needs to be removed. You can't read the Bible and not tie the knots together. You got to tie the bow. You got to connect the dots. You got to make sure that you read the Bible with intention and purpose. There's a curse on Canaan. And where does God bring Abraham to the Canaanites? Again, back to the chart, if we remember in our mind from the beginning of the message, Ham is probably still alive. Shem was. It's possible that Canaan himself was still alive. Shem's son, Arphaxad, lived 458 years and died just before Abraham was born. Or just when Abraham was born and was living. It is very possible that the youngest son, Ham's son, Canaan, was alive and was witnessing God's promise to curse and remove him. That's a wonderful truth. 
God's always up to something in your life. You've got to trust His choices. You've got to trust His leading. His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. One author said of the Canaanites, they were a race corrupt beyond description, cursed and condemned by God, and Abraham shows up, friends, in their midst. Why? Because he wants people of faith to show up and deal with that which he hates. Why did Canaan get the curse? Because he mocked God's man of grace. Instead of correcting the fault and loving him, he made fun of him and said, what is God's grace effectively? In God's providential choice, he directs Abraham to be the cure for that curse. God's leading of Abraham was so that his word would be fulfilled. In God's choosing, he directs Abraham by faith to remove the accursed thing from the land where God wanted to establish his people. May I say to you, God will, through his leading, bring you to things that must go out of your life. He will bring you to that point where you've got to make a decision. And the question is, are you going to hold on to it and keep that accursed thing? Or are you going to expel it from your life? About 500 years after this recording in Genesis chapter 12, Joshua is leading the people back into the promised land. If you come on Wednesday night, you can hear Edward preaching on that in our midweek services. But in going into the land, he was told to drive out the inhabitants of that land. They were all children of those Canaanites. Abraham was being directed by God to this very same place. The Old Testament land of promise is for Israel, and the New Testament for us, it is the life of promise. They are principally synonymous, but there is a biblical distinction between the promised land and the promised life. But there are parallels from each that we can attend to and must be careful not to overlook. All I can say is this, wherever God directs your life, be sure to watch for and remove any accursed thing from your old flesh that you find there. It must go. In short, God knew exactly why and where he was leading Abraham. Abraham and his seed would be the cure for the cursed nature of fallen man. What is that cure? Faith in God. Trusting him. How do I overcome my flesh, Pastor? Do I just need to go out and do 19 Hail Marys? Nope. You need to trust the God of this book. If you've been saved, if you've surrendered to the call, you need to surrender to His choices. And where He comes into your life and points out little things that need to go out of your life, listen and get rid of them. That's what a life of surrender means. By faith, we surrender to God's call, to God's choices, and finally this morning, we surrender to God's care. When we surrender to God's care, we are left to believe that God can do the impossible. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if we keep reading, we actually see the negative of this and wish we could read the positive. I wish we could stop reading at the end of verse number 8 and pick up again our reading somewhere in chapter 13 and verse 4, but we can't. Here's the story that intervenes, and this is where Abraham, even though he was surrendered to God's call and he was surrendered to God's choice, there were times in his newfound faith where he wasn't surrendered to God's care or protection or provision for him. 
The Bible says in verse 9, And Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abraham or Abram went down into Egypt so to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is my wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. Gross. I mean, when you read the Bible, you're allowed to say that out loud. I've never said Jessica was my sister, ever, to anybody. It would be gross. Verse 14, and it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her or ushered her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abraham, Abram excuse me, well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses, men servant and maid servants, she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Why? Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me she was thy wife? Why why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to my wife? Now therefore, behold, thy wife, take her, go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Verse number 1 of chapter 13, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south, or the south of Canaan. When we read this story, we realize that Abraham doubted God's care for him. It is interesting, back in verse number 8, we are told that at the time of this famine that came into the land, Abraham was dwelling and camped between Bethel and Hai. Do you know what those names mean? Bible names are very important. Bethel means the house of God, where Hai means a heap of ruins. In other words, quite literally, in the new life that he had surrendered himself to, he was between dwelling in the house of God or living in a heap of ruins. That's what it means. Well, that's just accidentally written in there for us. He's God. He can write whatever he wants, and Abraham lived this life. This is what it means, and this is what happened. The lure of Egypt, which from this point forward in the Word of God is always going to be a type of the world for us. From this point, going all the way through the Bible, when you read of Egypt, it is a picture and a type of what the world is to the believer in Jesus Christ. Here we find Abram departs down. By the way, it is physically down in the south, but it is spiritually down when we go from the new life we have in Christ to the world and the way it lives. And so what we find is Abraham had followed God for nearly 1,000 miles into the unknown. Yet once he got there, he decided that he knew better than God how to live in this land. Stop and think for a second. Isn't that what most Christians do? And I just need Jesus. Oh, give me a little bit of Jesus. I just want to love Jesus. Oh, I just want to be saved. Pastor, I want to be saved. Good, get saved. Six months after they get saved, well, pastor, I just don't think I need to take that out of my life. I know better than God. Do you? Well, I know what the Bible says, but man, I just know what I feel. And this feels right. It feels like I can do this. It feels like what I should do. And the answer is, stop thinking that way. If you're surrendered to God's care, then you must surrender 
to His care. We surrender to Christ in salvation, but somehow we think that we can be self-sufficient in the new life that God has given to us. How foolish. The famine came, the Bible says, not because God had forsaken Abraham, but because He was there testing Abraham's faith. When the first true test in the land of promise came, Abraham failed. Why? Well, we note two errors that were manifest in his life that are too often in our lives and cause us to fail in surrendering to God's care as well. Number one, or letter A, I should say, he had the error in leaving that life. Instead of staying where God's blessing was, he said, look, I know better. This famine is bad. You don't know the circumstances, Pastor. You just don't understand my situation. You just don't know. The Bible doesn't understand that. It didn't write, uh, have a story written about my circumstances. Mine are different. I'm going to go do this. And that's what Abraham effectively is saying here. God, there's a famine. You didn't tell me there'd be a famine here. I'm not sticking around for this. The famine was sent on purpose by God to test him. I ask this question then, why would he, and we could read here, why would you, leave what you know is best for you from God? Well, it's a famine. You don't understand the circumstances. This happened in my life. This person did this to me. They said this about me. Is that reason to leave the new life in Christ? The answer for Abraham here was because the circumstances looked difficult, the situation seemed dire, And all that surrounded him was distressing. When things get tough in the Christian life, that's when your faith is proven. Whom or what do you trust in? It's actually kind of encouraging for me this morning to know that godly people can find themselves in moments of weakness. Sometimes a pastor will stand behind the pulpit and say this, I just don't understand the sin you people are committing. As a pastor, I can understand the sins you people are committing. Because sometimes I commit the same ones. (gasps) I wish I didn't. I hope to work in my faith and walk with God that I don't. But a pastor is just flesh and blood like you are. It It is physically true that Egypt is south from where Abraham was dwelling, but it's also spiritually true that when we head back down into the world, we are outside of God's holy desire for us. And we are in a state of decline. Many a young believer finds disappointment awaiting at the outset of a new Christian life, their new faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody has let us down. Persecution has come into my life. Tragedy has struck. And that young believer is going to have to discover that the old nature is very much alive within us. That's what Abraham is teaching us here. It's a real surrender to God's continual care. Abraham's leaving led to his second error, and that was in lying. Do you know who Abraham lied to first? Himself. Do you know who he lied to second? His wife. Do you know who he lied to third? Pharaoh and everybody else that would listen. When you leave God and the life that God has for you, a life of faith, a new life found in Jesus Christ for us in this New Testament age, when you leave that, there's no amount of lying that you won't tell. And you'll believe it. A lot of times Christians in their lying become victims. It's just not fair. I mean, I would be a better Christian, but you just don't know, Pastor. Kyle, you just don't understand. I I probably don't your circumstances. 
But I can tell you this, you're lying to yourself to believe that God's out of control. What is the particular lie here? I know what I'll do. I'll tell everybody it's my sister. How is that going to help her? How did it help her? And the answer is, not at all. Not one bit. You can see the anxiety building up in Abraham as he's moving farther and farther away from God's place of blessing, from the new life that he had been given, from the land that he was promised. He, the Bible says in verse 11, when he was come near unto Egypt. May I say to the young Christians in here, the closer you get to the world, the less you'll feel saved. Every time. Well, how do you know that? Because I was a 19, 20, 21, and 22-year-old who was living far from God, though I was saved. And I can tell you, there were many a times where I did not know or believe in my heart that I was still a Christian. Did I lose my salvation? No, because I didn't earn my salvation. But I can tell you, the closer you get to Egypt, the more the lies you'll start telling yourself. The crazy part is he started believing his own lies. Yeah, this is going to work. I think we'll make it through. I think it'll be okay. He looked at all the things that were important to him and began making calculations and deals on how he could keep them safe. Could he keep them safe? No, not on your life. The truth is, Abraham didn't know if any of these lies that he was telling himself and others would work. He panicked, and so he lied. Folks, we're the same way. When we leave God's holiness, His justice, and His peace, when we leave His presence, when we go off to live the life that we want, the life that we choose, that we make for ourselves, we too panic. And we begin to make deals with our flesh, with the devil, and with the world. Can I say an aside here to husbands and to men this morning? Our wives do not do well when we begin to doubt God's care for us. Abraham should have never been in this situation. He should have never left God's promised life and promised land. But he compounded his problem by causing Sarah to doubt him. Ladies, let me ask you this. If you were going down to Egypt with your husbands and your husband said, hey, look, you're a beautiful woman and they're going to kill me and take, me, take you as their wife. Why don't you lie and say you're my sister? What would you think of your husband? I mean, this isn't marriage counseling here, but it could be. You'd think, you jerk. What is wrong with you? Don't you love me enough to stand up for me? Uh, no, I don't love you enough. I'm lying about it. Go with me on this. By the way, when we get down, we're going to get later to this in the story. Is there any wonder why Sarah doubts his word? It's because of the lack of faith in God's care here and the lies that he tells himself, the lies that he tells her, and the lies that he tells Pharaoh and Egypt. It is these lies that cause her to say, I don't trust you at all, man. The problem in our country is not radical feminism or weak manism. problem in our country is that men who are Christians don't live godly lives from the Word of God. They don't surrender to God's care. When we fail to surrender to God's leading and care, we begin to tell ourselves lies that we try to make into our own truth. Abraham was technically correct, for Sarah was a distant relative in the line of Shem, but he was wholly wrong in making up this lie. By the way, that's how your flesh will get you. 
it'll start making technicalities into realities. The sin of not trusting God's care will do the same thing in our lives. We will fabricate half-truths and almost right answers until we convince ourselves that this is the only way forward. And Abraham should have just stopped and said, you know what, there's a famine, but I'm going back to where God said he would bless me. He never did. He does ultimately after it's all played out in chapter 13, but not during the process. I put in my notes here, leaving God's care always leads us to lying about God's control. When we leave his protective care, it always leads us to telling lies, either to ourselves or to others, about God's control. I do love the end of this story, by the way, as we wind the message to a close. The Bible says Pharaoh and Egypt are plagued by God. Why? Because of Abraham's failure to trust in God's care. Christian, do you understand that's happening in our world today? We want to say the world is in a terrible shape because of the wickedness of men's hearts. And the answer is that's only partially true. The church has lost her power. The church has lost her position. The church has lost her purpose. We don't stand for the new life and love it and live it like we should. And so as we go out into the world and live like the world, they don't want what we have and there's no help for them. We lie to them, and notice what Pharaoh says. It's exactly what the world is crying out for today. Notice what he says in verse number 18. What is this that thou hast done unto me? Do you realize the lost world is asking that of the church today? Why are you all doing We have distilled and diluted what worship is. We've just become seeker-sensitive. We just want to tickle their ears. We don't actually want to teach truth anymore. And the world outside of our church's doors, not just ours but others, they are going to hell every moment of every day. And they are saying, what have you done to us? Can you not just live for Christ in the new life you have? I put in my notes, weak Christianity has led to worldwide insanity. Well, I want to blame somebody else. (laughs) You're believing Abraham's lie. Well, but pastor, I'm trying to do what's right. Good, then keep doing that. The surrendered life is surrendered to his call, his choices, and to his care. Keep doing what's right. Don't stop. But weak Christianity is what the world sees. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've found people that say, I'm not going to church anymore because there are a bunch of charlatans there. They're fakes. They're hypocrites. And you know what? They're probably not wrong. Abraham teaches us all of this. A life of faith is a life of surrender. And as I tell my boys when things get hard at home, buckle up, buttercup. It's time to live the life. That's essentially what has to happen in our Christianity as well. When Christians do not trust the God who loves them, the world suffers. I don't know if I believe that. Trust me, it's a biblical truth. When Christians, believers, do not trust the God who loves them, they don't trust in His care, the world around us suffers. In closing this morning, Abraham is a study in faith. His life is introduced to us in faithful surrender. He surrendered to God's call to leave his old life and enter God's new life for him. Have you this morning done the same in Jesus Christ? He surrendered to God's choices. That means God's decisions and God's direction in his life. Have you surrendered to God's choices in your life? 
Finally, he should have surrendered to God's care, but instead he made two errors. He left God's care and presence, and he lied about God's control. My question to you is, do you trust the sovereign God who loves you and who gave his life for you? Do you trust him enough to care for your daily needs? Will you stay with him no matter your circumstances? Or would to God that would be true of every believer in this place? Father, help us, I pray.